Hi, I'm still Mike Duran. And I'm still Peter Rao. And this is still Counterbalance, the fastest growing podcast in America. Peter, I'm really looking forward to today's uh, to today's podcast. We're going to talk to Aaron McLean of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the curator of the School of War podcast, and Chairman Mike Gallagher, one of our favorites. Of course, he's a former student of mine, uh, but he's also the uh, congressman from Wisconsin and the chair of the House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, they have written a fantastic article in Foreign Affairs called uh, Why America Forgets and China Remembers the Korean War. Uh, We're going to have an exciting conversation about uh, the threat to Taiwan from China and uh, the need to deter them. Chairman Gallagher, Aaron, is that okay? Can I I call you Chairman Gallagher and, and then Aaron call you by your first name? I'm 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 Aaron. I'm Aaron to my friends. And and to Uh, me, you're what? Which you are not that (laughs) yet. No, Aaron. Aaron is fine. I'm I'm Mister. Yeah, you're senior fellow. Okay, so I'll call call you Captain Chairman Chairman Gallagher and fellow McLean. I will have it known that I I did uh, achieve the rank of Major Select in the individual ready reserve in the individual ready reserve. Major McLean has a nice ring to it. It I'm calling you Major McLean. Okay, so uh, uh, gentlemen, you guys wrote a fantastic article in Foreign Affairs called Why America Forgets and China Remembers the Korean War. It was, it was chilling, very chilling. Um, I actually have a slight personal relationship to the Korean War. My father served in the military during the Korean War. I am here, thanks to one quirk of history, uh, in, his basic, uh, in his unit during basic training, they gave him a test and he tested out of the unit, and they, they stuck him in intelligence. And his unit then went to Korea and got destroyed. So were it, were it not from that, for that test, I, uh, I would not be here speaking to you. Um, so oh, wow. uh, this is really, it's a very chilling article. And uh, But Mike's wh- got his mother's smarts. Let's just put that <laughs> on the record. Well, I'll just add that in the, in, in the present-day Marine Corps, Chairman Gallagher passed that test, and I did not. Uh, which was how our two respective careers went. Interesting. Yeah, I was in the rear. I was in the rear with the gear in air-conditioned Connex boxes in Iraq, and poor uh, Captain McLean was in the wilderness in Afghanistan, getting shot at every day. So it's not he's Major a real Select McLean. Major Select, that Lieutenant, i.e., Captain. Uh, okay, listen. Let's let's get down to the argument, uh, Chairman. Why don't you uh, why don't you kick us off here and just give us a quick uh, summary of your argument and why you wrote the the article? Well, I think at the simplest level, our argument is that the Korean War, uh, what is known as the Forgotten War, uh, should not be forgotten. That there are important lessons for the present day, if for no other reason than our foremost adversary on the world stage the Chinese Communist Party, is paying particular attention to this war. Uh, Xi Jinping routinely references it in speeches. He he extols Mao's brave decision to cross the Yalu and demonstrate that by throwing one punch, a hundred punches can be avoided. Uh, There is a cult of the Korean War uh, within the CCP. Students are forced to study it. The highest grossing Chinese movie of all time uh, is a, let's call it a, imaginative retelling of the the uh, Battle of Chosen Reservoir. Uh, it's a movie called The Battle at Lake Changin. Um, it was, it coincided, the release of it coincided with the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. And so I think at the simplest level, if your foremost adversary is interested in something, you should, you should study it. And as Aaron and I uh, kind of dug into this, uh, this course or prepare for this course. And this course was really built around studying one book, a book called This Kind of War by T.R. Fehrenbach, which is not really the most comprehensive history of the Korean War, nor the most authoritative, something that Fehrenbach himself admits. But I think it sort of is uniquely well-written, does a great job of zooming in and out from the tactical to the operation to the strategic level of the war. I think the more we we sort of found... Um, parallels to to the present day in terms of our lack of military preparedness, 
our tendency to mirror image or underestimate the willingness of authoritarian regimes to do things that we might consider stupid or ill-advised from a Western perspective, um, as well as just the way in which um, our decisions to to place limits on the conduct of war can actually prolong the suffering and prolong the duration of war. So for those reasons and many others, we feel like this is a war worth remembering. I particularly like the emphasis on mirror imaging and how the Chinese um, uh, think of us and how we think of them. Uh, this might not be true, might be apocryphal, but let's pretend for the purpose of the discussion it's true. I remember 20 years ago or so when I was a young lad, I had a professor who, uh, who in a lecture was, uh, was telling us uh, at university how uh, there was a piece run in The Onion or a similar satirical American at the time, it was still funny, the Onion uh, outlet, about how the U.S. Capitol had moved to Indianapolis. And apparently, one of the major Chinese dailies, could have even been the People's Daily, picked it up one-to-one and just reposted it uh, on their news as if it was true. I think the Chinese have come a long ways. I mean, at the time, I remember thinking, wow, we have a a nuclear-armed state, a deterrence regime with the Chinese, even if, of course, they've come a long way since then on military matters. But I think they've also come a long ways in understanding the U.S., Whereas in the reverse, I'm not sure we understand China all that well. North Korea has a higher proportion of immigrants than China. Uh, I read recently The Economist, according to the UN. And the Thousand Talents program to attract academics from abroad, which has enrolled about 10,000 scientists and engineers from 2008 to 2018, all but 390 or 400 of them were Chinese-born returnees. So we don't have a lot of, I think, uh, American know-how in China reporting back to us. But the Chinese have a lot of know-how in the U.S. Uh, explaining the United States to them. And that strikes me as a major deficiency, which leads us to, in a way, mirror image, because all we know is ourselves rather than them. Uh, that's just a long statement. I don't know if you agree with that, but maybe I'd go to you. Maybe I'll call you Brother McLean now. Brother Aaron, what do you think of uh, what do you think of that? Do you think that's a, Would you agree with me on that, or do you think that's overblown? No, I, I agree with you, of course, and I, I also think this— um this inability to turn the map around and see things from the other direction kind of operates at numerous levels. It operates at the very broad level that you just described. It also operates at the level of understanding senior leader behavior. I mean, if you think about Xi Jinping and his life, you know, what happened to his family, um, his rustication during the Cultural Revolution, rising to the top uh, in, in the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Republic, uh, in a series of very dangerous, very, um, uh, you know, risky enterprises, and then consolidating power uh, and setting himself up to be the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. What kind of man, what, what is required of a man to achieve that, right? Um, and how does he look at the world? And what sort of decisions does he make having been trained in that kind of school? As opposed to, I mean, really any any major politician in the United States, I'm not sure there's, there's anyone um, at the top of our politics who, who you could even begin to draw a similar kind of comparison in their lives. You know, President Biden had some early successes in Delaware, Democratic Party politics, and was in the United States Senate for many decades, and um, then had some political successes later in life as well. It's not the same experiences. It does, it does not form you the same way. You do not learn the same things about human beings. Uh, you are not required to be as ruthless um, uh, as Xi Jinping regularly was just to survive. Um, and that leads that leads to um, the, uh, the same problem, just expressed differently. So I, I, I agree completely. I agree. I have to interject, though, um, and take offense because me getting a C on my first paper <laughs> from Mike Duran at Princeton was was a formative experience and turned me into this ruthless uh, politician you see before you. I, I, I feel like this is at least somewhat analogous in terms of hardship. You know, the, the audience didn't see how you dissed my book coming into the, com, coming into the uh, interview here. And so I am responsible and, and so for they, 80% of the sales of your book. Mike, I love your book. Okay. <laughs> no, I agree. But, I agree with I, the argument. I, I'm just, just for the benefit of people here, Peter and, and, and brother Aaron, you know, they, they, they didn't understand when you were dissing my book that it all goes back to that grade I gave you. At That's true. Your first- he he put, uh, implanted a massive chip on my shoulder. On a serious point, to part of your question, um, Peter, I think the view we tend to get, I mean, who, who most frequently goes to China and comes back? It's the business community, right? And I think it's fair to say that the business community gets a certain perspective 
that's not always the most accurate perspective. And they have enormous outsized influence on American politics. Um, and oftentimes, at least my experience uh, in chairing this committee and prior to that, is that some of the biggest divides we have on China, consequently, are not always between Democrats and Republicans, though there are meaningful differences, particularly on the issue of of climate change and whether to cooperate with China on climate change or whether they're interested in cooperating. But they're really b- between kind of the national security-minded folks and the financial uh, community, the Wall Street community. I think you saw that division in the Trump administration. I, th- I think you're seeing part of it now. Um, but I do think it, it it is responsible for some of our distorted image of the CCP because those who do business there, um, unless they, you know, your banning company recently had your your headquarters raided or your Micron and you had this regulatory activity sort of tend to think, well, of course, Xi Jinping isn't going to invade Taiwan. That's crazy. You know how much money he might stand to lose? And so I think there there's a way in which that's responsible for a lot of the mirror imaging we see in our analysis and our politics. Yeah, that goes exactly to what uh, Aaron was saying about the kind of experiences that you go through to become an American leader an American leader is a is a, is a manager of many different processes, including electoral processes, economic processes, and and so on. He he or she couldn't imagine uh, taking a step knowingly that was going to uh, that was going to destroy immediately a percentage of the GNP. So they look at the business community, looks at the vulner the economic vulnerabilities of of China, looks at the interdependency of their economy and ours. And it concludes that they are deterred. If they're not deterred, in, in, in your view, give us a sense of what's the window here that they're looking at. If, if, he's, if, he, if, if, if Xi Jinping is sitting and actually contemplating a strike, how much time does he think he has? What's, his, what's, the, what's the optimum uh, time to move? with respect to the balance of military power and any other factors that he's got on his mind? Well, I guess the honest answer is we don't know. Uh, 2027 is, of course, the date he has set for his military, the PLA, to be ready to take Taiwan by force. I think it would that happens to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the founding of the PLA. I mean, I think it would be dumb to launch an invasion just for the sort of sentimental reason of it coinciding with the 100th anniversary. My sense is as soon as he thinks it's achievable, he'll make a move. Um, And it's why I think we've entered the window of maximum danger. I think things get particularly dangerous after the January 2024 election in Taiwan, where if the Democratic Progressive Party wins, uh, I think Xi Jinping will conclude that he can't achieve this via political warfare, which is another uh, argument in our piece that uh, Major McLean can... uh, can, can tease out sort of this, we tend to make distinction between the politics and the war in a way that the CCP does not. Um, but after that, I think it things will really start to heat up. We also are in a very difficult spot in terms of our conventional deterrent uh, over the next five years. Uh, we have a lot of big defense bills that are coming due, uh, Columbia-class sub, um, you know, there's downward pressure on the defense budget. Our Navy has significant problems. The Biden administration's uh, naval plan would have us bottom out at 279 ships at 2027, probably the worst time you'd want to have a small Navy in a theater that's dominated by a lot of water. And so I just think the next five years are going to be a particular challenge for deterring a PLA invasion of Taiwan. But admittedly, I don't know what lurks in the the black heart and mind of, of General Secretary Xi Jinping. Master Strategist McLean, uh, back to you uh, with a quick question. One thing about the Korean War, and I just happened to finish um, uh, a biography of MacArthur uh, a, a few weeks ago. Manchester's? Yeah. Yeah, Manchester's, which... Uh, which is a little infuriating to read because he can write at levels that I can only aspire to in my mind. And so what a great writer. Uh, it really, it really is something, but, um, the amount of casualties that the Chinese took, uh, in, in the Korean war is just astounding. I mean, just enormous numbers pushed forward, slaughtered reserves, brought up reserves that we didn't even knew exist, brought up behind those waves after waves of, of, of deaths. Um, there's some speculation that because of the one China or the one one child policy, um, there might be a little bit more sensitivity to that today. Uh, I don't know if that speculation is is on is is accurate or whether or not it's off base. But um, but the thinking, of course, being that 
uh, how many people want to send their one and only child off to a war um, uh, where they're killed. Although, you know, who wants to send any child off to be killed in a war? H having said all that, do you think that any of the any of the Chinese calculation around around this has changed at all, or do you think that we still have are living in the same paradigm of 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 the fifties? Yeah, it's a great question, and I suppose I'll, I'll begin my answer by repeating something that uh, that Ch Chairman Gallagher said about your last question, which is that you know we don't we don't really know. I'm familiar with the argument uh, that the CCP uh, might be more sensitive uh, to um, to casualties because of the one child policy. I think I've seen Edward Lutvak make that that argument uh, repeatedly. In a way, we have like a real time test of that because he's made the same argument about Russia, uh, a country, you know, well into a demographic collapse that is currently losing lots of folks on the battlefield in Ukraine every day. So that's an experiment that's playing out in real time. Um, I have not, and to the extent that I've been following that conflict, detected a way in which casualty aversion um, is really limiting Putin's decision making, um, though I could be wrong about that. I fear um, that, uh, you know, even if the same level of bloodthirstiness and, and willing to sacrifice is... Um, less than it was in the early 50s. It might be more certainly than the United States or a Western country um, could uh, could bring to bear in terms of tolerance of casualties. You know, when you look just on this theme of political warfare and the way in which authoritarian leaders in general and the Chinese uh, leadership in particular weave it into um, their battlefield thinking, the, the just the absolute nastiness of the invasion scenarios of Taiwan have, have got to play a role in their planning, and they've got to be thinking of ways in which they can politically mitigate or make more feasible the invasion itself. I was just in Normandy uh, earlier this summer on a, a staff ride um, studying uh, Neptune and Overlord and the invasion there, and there's a fascinating map you can find online of the Normandy beaches, but the, the overlay of that map put on the, on the west coast of Taiwan, the map sort of, you know, the, the, the Western Pacific map flipped so that west is north, um, and it's actually pretty eerie. The uh, the Neptune overlay fits almost perfectly onto Taiwan. The distances are very similar. The width of the strait compared to the width of the English Channel, it's actually a very similar proposition, um, if anything, with nastier tides um, uh, out in the Western Pacific. And of course, if you think back to the summer of 1944, the Allies enjoyed um, total, near total um, air dominance and near total maritime dominance. And what happened on the beach was still pretty rough. So I can't imagine sitting there as a PLA planner uh, thinking about the full-blown military scenarios, which you've got all these American forces that you're staring down the barrel of that are based in uh, Japan uh, and elsewhere. You know, a, a sort of straightforward military planning scenario, you'd, you'd go after all those in the first moment. But if that's the case, you've got to get a bunch of guys across this strait under very, very difficult conditions, lacking all the advantages that the Allies had in 1944, all of which leads me to conclude, or, 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 or speculate at least, um, that there have got to be, um, uh, they've got to be putting serious thought into, for example, how do you delay an American entry into the war and what risks are you willing to assume militarily in order to achieve that delay? What can you do to suppress the Taiwanese response on the breaches, beaches, um, you know, again, through, through political means and means of subversion? You know, what, what ways can you sort of think outside the purely military box to make what is otherwise a very unpalatable scenario, strategically speaking, more palatable? I'm, I mean, I'm quite confident that they're thinking in this way. As I read your article, I was working on some uh, lectures on the 1973 uh, Arab-Israeli War, and uh, maybe it's because because everything these days reminds me of the Yom Kippur War. But uh, but I saw I saw real parallels there as well because the uh, the Israelis and the Americans, by the way, everyone assumed that the military balance between Egypt and Israel was such that the Egyptians wouldn't attack. Uh, they couldn't because they couldn't cross the canal. The same sort of proposition. The cost of uh, of, of crossing the canal was just prohibitive because of his, uh, Israeli air superiority in, in particular. The calculation uh, turned out to be entirely wrong. One of, one of the reasons why the Israelis and the Americans couldn't imagine this happening was because they they couldn't imagine something um, between harassment and total war meant to get a complete victory. So that this this is to your point about the political military action and not and and, and not understanding the the connection. Sadat launched that war 
in order to in in order to shake up the diplomacy, you know, to light a fire under the Americans that the status quo was not acceptable, and that there will would be costs for maintaining the uh, the status quo, and also to soften up the Israelis. In addition, he just wanted a political, I mean, a, um, a political victory, uh, so that he would have more. Room to maneuver politically at home uh, in order to make a concession to the Israelis. So uh, th this was impossible for anyone to see, looking at it from a point of view of uh, mere imaging, and it made me realize with the with the something I hadn't thought about with the Chinese is that they they may not be the, the, it may be the Korean War scenario. They may not they may not be looking actually to take over all of Taiwan. They may not be looking to completely defeat the United States. They just need to give the United States a big enough bloody nose to show the entire world that they can do it um, and, and thereby change everyone's perception of where history is going and especially change the perception of the Taiwanese, uh, the, the Taiwanese government. Is that, is that a possible scenario? Definitely a possible scenario. When I went to Taiwan a, a few months ago, I sort of left thinking that the though I had been almost myopically focused on the conventional amphibious landing scenario that I that the blockade scenario deserved a lot more attention. And we've had some pretty confident pronouncements by our PAC fleet commander and future Indo-Pacific commander about our ability to deal with or break a blockade. Um, I don't share that confidence. Uh, it's clear if you look at, I was just in Iowa, um, not doing anything in terms of the 2024 election, talking to Iowa farmers about wow, we heard uh, it right the theft here. of, we yeah, right. I am prepared today. To that's being clipped that's and sent out as a that's teaser. A, that's that's right. very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> very exciting. Hey, congratulations. Yeah, congrats. I, I'm, I'm behind your campaign 100%. Just what the 2024 field needs, a bookish, introverted, uh, met, member of Congress who ranks 215th in seniority, who spends his time teaching classes about the Korean War. That's, I, I think this is the issue that uh, voters in the Republican primary will be, will be casting their vote on. Um, but uh, it, it's clear that, you know, they recognize they have an enormous dependency on America, uh, on foreign sources for food, and they're trying to wean themselves off that dependency in an effort to prepare for a prolonged standoff with the West. And, and I think they, they'll see it as a a test of wills. Just quickly, your your comment earlier about casualty aversion. I will note there. I mean, there are people like Oriana Mastro who've made the argument. Uh, I think pretty convincingly that if you gave Xi Jinping the the choice uh, and you said you can have Taiwan, but it's going to cost you your entire navy. I'm paraphrasing. He would not hesitate to accept that that bargain. Um, so there may not be the same level of insensitivity insensitivity to casualties that there were in, in 1950 within the CCP command structure, but I still think relative to us, there's there's far less sensitivity to casualties. Um, your other comment about the uh, Yom Kippur War, Mike, uh, you know, I'm just reminded of MacArthur's calculations uh, post the Inchon landing, which was a masterstroke, and, and really in, in the Manchester biography, I, he's pretty lavish in his praise of MacArthur at that moment, and I think MacArthur does deserve a lot of the praise. I mean, almost everybody, including, you know, the Marines who were very uh, um, experienced with amphibious landing, had done it, um, you know, throughout the Pacific and World War II, advised against it. There's this point in which, I forget who says it, but I think it's either the top Navy officer or top Marine there says, the best thing I could say about Inchon is that the landing is not impossible, but everything is stacked against it, and MacArthur goes ahead with it. But then, of course, drives north of the 30th parallel afterward. There's nobody who can question his decision. But as he's meeting with Truman on Wake Island, which is this really remarkable incident, right? The president of the United States flies all the way uh, to Wake in order to meet with MacArthur, as opposed to MacArthur going to D.C. to meet with the president. They have this sort of bizarre conference, um, and MacArthur assures Truman uh, that the Chinese will not get involved. Um, and part of his confidence is because he believes that if they cross the Yalu, he'll absolutely decimate them. Such was the advantage he felt American air power gave him that, I forget the colorful language he uses, but he's, he basically says, I will destroy them if they come across the Yalu. Uh, but the Chinese do the simplest thing, which is when they go across, uh, they largely move at night. Um, and we didn't obviously have over, overhead satellite imagery to detect their movement at night as well as some of the advanced uh, ISR that we can benefit from today. 
if during the day they were very disciplined in terms of using cover and concealment and natural terrain to mask their movement. And so uh, MacArthur's confidence uh, that he'll be able to stop the invasion or destroy them is misplaced. Um, the entire intelligence establishment is in its infancy at the time and basically entirely dependent on what's coming out of the Daiichi in, in Tokyo, which is basically MacArthur's assessment. Um, and uh, th this obviously leads to the profound miscalculation and underestimation of the Chinese willingness to send divisions and divisions across the Yalu uh, and send them against American forces. Yeah, these miscalculations are fascinating. I, I was thinking of, um, of, of Aaron's comments about Normandy, how the, the German defenders were skeptical of landings um, on Normandy because there were no natural harbors there. And so they thought Cherbourg in the north um, with a natural harbor was more importantly fortified or Calais in particular. And yet, um, and it took Hitler hours to free up reserve divisions, which he had um, placed, I think, uh, just north of Paris um, to, to mobilize to go meet because they thought it was a diversionary landing. These misreads, I think, are a perpetual feature of warfare. And connecting it back to your Korea article struck me was we could miscalculate over Korea, but our lead in industrial might and, and sheer strength allowed us to recover. I wondered today, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you, uh, Chairman Gallagher, I wondered today whether or not we have that industrial lead, whether or not we have that surfeit of power, relative power over the Chinese that allows for us to make miscalculations. And I don't really wonder, I suppose I'm um, leading the witness, but, um, but go ahead. Aaron, uh, Lord Viceroy McLean and I were teaching this, uh, this course and then we released the article um, on the, the 70th anniversary of the Armistice Agreement. And Im immediately, I think within 12 or 24 hours, the, uh, the CCP pro English language propaganda paper put out an op-ed attacking us for the article and talking about how we learned the wrong lessons from the Korean War. The lesson is don't basically don't F with China. Uh, and the only thing that's different, uh, or the biggest thing that's different between 1950 and the present day is that China is far more powerful than it was relative to the US. And I have to say, if you sort of strip away a lot of the propaganda and the fact that they describe me as, uh, as someone whose arrogance and madness are comparable to Douglas MacArthur, uh, which was a crowning achievement of my career, I, f I feel like. That is true, right? Like, on that, that is actually a true statement. Like, the balance of power is far less favorable to us in the Indo-Pacific today. More to the point, that old model of Freedom's Forge, which is the story we tell ourselves about, okay, if we get punched in the face initially, we'll be able to, you know, build up our power, you know, Ford's going to start churning out bombers and this and that. We'll have time to mobilize the industrial might of America. Well, one, I don't think our, our industrial base, let alone our defense industrial base, is, is ready for that. Uh, and then two, if the CCP pursues a fait accompli strategy on Taiwan, where they move rapidly uh, to seize control of the island, it's almost we don't have months. Uh, we don't have weeks to surge forces, surge men and materiel west of the international dateline. And so I think we're in a precarious position. Master and McLean. I just also add to it and go to you, Aaron. I, you know, the other thing which you referenced in the article is the escalation dominance, which Eisenhower enjoyed in his messaging via the Indians to the Chinese. We don't necessarily have that um, today, as I understand it. I mean, the situation in a way is even more concerning because, yes, we were able by the spring summer of 1951 to regain our footing to recover from two really grievous surprises and upsets. First, the invasion itself in the previous summer, and then the Chinese intervention, both of which we failed to anticipate and to which we, we really struggled to respond. We had American infantry divisions getting destroyed, getting destroyed on the field of battle in 1950-51, which is difficult to contemplate today. But even with, as you correctly point out, our recovering our footing, we achieve air dominance, we, 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 know we have a blockade, we, we put forces on the peninsula that start to push back up north again, it doesn't get us home. It doesn't get us to, um, you know, a settlement that the United States is comfortable with because of Chinese dominance, or I should say communist dominance, because it's both North Korean and Chinese, at the negotiating table, where they just ran circles around us, session after session. There's 159 sessions of talks. And to study that that element of the war, actually, I think the, the best comparison um, to anything roughly contemporary um, is, is U.S.-Iran relations. Um, it reminds me of the excellent work, Mike Duran, you've done. 
uh, on U.S.-Iran relations, and particularly the Obama and Biden administration's dealings with Iran. I mean, they so they run circles around us at the negotiating table. It takes two years um, for us to figure out a formula to deal with their relentless bad faith and their very clever integration, again, of what they're saying at the negotiating table and what's actually happening on the battlefield. Um, and what is it? What is that ingredient that comes to play? Well, finally, and this is, I'm actually a little bit disappointed that the, the, the piece that we wrote in Foreign Affairs hasn't generated as much controversy in the United States as I hoped it would, because we make an argument towards the end of the piece, and I, I blame it on the fact that it is towards the end of the piece, the CCP actually read all the way to the end, that the kinds of things that Douglas MacArthur is threatening, or I should say wants to do, in the winter of 5051, setting aside for a moment their feasibility and wisdom, just, just putting putting aside our assessment up down of whether or not it was the right thing to do in the winter of 5051. Well, these are the kinds of things that Dwight Eisenhower starts talking about in his NSC engagements on Korea when he comes into office. Dwight Eisenhower campaigns on the Korean War being a quote-unquote crusade. He is Dwight Eisenhower. He is not Harry Truman, which is itself an important part of the scenario. I mean, this is the the supervisor of America's victory in Europe uh, who brings with him that, that reputation, right? So all of these things change the balance fundamentally on the American, or I should say UN side of the equation, and ultimately lead to an armistice ag- agreement or a ceasefire um, that is no better at all than what was possible in the summer of 1951, and in some ways less, in some ways less than what could have been achieved militarily through 1951. So that's just to say, yes, we, we certainly are in a, I'll, I'll say this, we were in a, a, um, a less strong position vis-a-vis escalation dominance with respect to China than we were in the early 1950s. How much less is, I think, something that we could get into a pretty technical debate about. But we still, I, I think, we still have the same disadvantage in our level of sophistication and nuance with which we approach political warfare. Nothing has changed there. They had the advantage then. I think they have the advantage now. I, I'm uh, amazed. I was amazed when I worked in government uh, at the lack of connection between what the State Department does and what the and what and what our military does, and uh, and but also just the way we think about these things. We think about uh, we think about warfare and peace and pressure as separate and sequential stages of conflict. And we don't, we don't think about using the, I mean, I, I should say, I mean, there, there are exceptions. We, we, sometimes we get our act together, but we're not set up fundamentally to think that way. Whereas they, it's it, for the communists, it's in their blood. We, so we're not going to be able to, you know, all the decisions that have been made to deindustrialize America, those are long past. Um, we're not going to be able to turn that around anytime soon, um, if ever. The military, the weapon systems that we're going to have uh, available to us, we're not going to be able to change that anytime soon, I don't think. You could correct me if I'm wrong on that. So we have what we have right now for the next you know, three or four years. What steps can we take uh, in the current circumstances to deter the Chinese? Do we have any kind of four-star assets that we can bring to bear that we're not bringing to bear right now? Well, I think it all starts from a an understanding that um – you know, while soft power can help, ultimately hard power deters, right? And this is why I've been so critical about the Biden administration's defense strategy, the cornerstone of which is this concept of integrated deterrence. The idea is that you can somehow, by better integrating diplomacy and economics into your deterrent strategy, you can um, you can enhance deterrence even as you sort of cut conventional hard power. I think when it comes to Xi Jinping's calculus, um, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the thing that gives us the most bang for our buck in terms of deterrence is to have ships, planes, bombs, long-range precision fires that could make his life a living hell if he tries to invade Taiwan. Uh, put differently, and again to channel uh, Professor Mastro, if, if you want to actually signal to Xi that invading Taiwan would be a bad idea, then make it so. Uh, de- put in place a, a denial, a deterrence by denial posture that would make it very, very difficult to achieve his objective. Second thing I would say is that we are no longer Hold bound on. I'm by- sorry to interrupt you, but for those of us who aren't up on all the uh, on all of the details of the theater, can you just give us a little bit of a sense of what what does a deterrence by denial posture look like? It starts, I think about it in terms of uh, concentric rings of fire, uh, the first of which is on Taiwan 
uh, itself. Um, moving heaven and earth to arm the Taiwans with uh, anti-ship missiles in particular and smart mines. Uh, we have harpoons that they've purchased that aren't going to be delivered until 2027. We can fix that if we had the willpower. We are putting about 200 of our own outdated harpoons into deep storage. Uh, you can MacGyver those and deliver those to the Taiwans. Uh, turning Taiwan into a porcupine uh, is doable. It's, it's, it's not easy, but it's doable, and that's sort of the first inner ring. The second is if you expand to sort of the northern Philippine islands and, and southern Japanese islands, um, particularly taking advantage of small teams of Marines uh, with naval strike missiles um, you know, that are mounted on autonomous joint light tactical vehicles, things can get pretty interesting. Uh, we're no longer bound by the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, so we can have ground-launched um, uh, intermediate-range missiles throughout the theater. Uh, and then you expand to some of our own territories uh, um, and, and other areas where you could get pretty creative um, with, uh, for example, putting INF non-compliant systems in northern Australia, uh, it, it, it provided they had sovereign control uh, with the Aussies. Um, these are all things that I think are doable. It takes a long time to build a massive aircraft carrier or a submarine, but these are weapon systems that are not new, particularly if you put um, advanced energetics inside of these missile systems, you can get more range and more lethality. And I'm sorry to go on here, but the final thing I would say is that probably the easiest thing we could integrate and to bring it back to Iowa uh, into our deterrent posture is stronger presidential leadership. And I just say that because your comments about uh, Eisenhower, both McLean's comments and, and Duran's, um, you know, think about what Eisenhower had to do just dealing with Taiwan throughout his administration. Uh, two of the three Taiwan Strait crises happened on Eisenhower's Watch. And during the first Taiwan Strait crisis, Eisenhower secures an advanced authorization for the use of military force from Congress. And he publicly states and hints that America might use tactical nuclear weapons in a war with communist China. Uh, again, uh, something uh, Truman gets excoriated for in, a, in, a, uh, in an undisciplined press conference. Uh, during the second Taiwan Strait crisis, the Eisenhower administration reinforces the Seventh Fleet with two aircraft carriers. They deploy an additional squadron of Air Force fighter jets to the Pacific. They put Matador cruise missiles uh, on Taiwan. Uh, even during the third Taiwan Strait crisis, uh, in the Clinton administration, he sails a carrier battle group through the Strait. It was the biggest show of, of, of military force since the Vietnam War. My only point is that a lot of this does depend, I hate to admit this as a member of the legislative branch, on the president's credibility and the president's um, willingness to uh, threaten uh, war. It's sort of the paradox of deterrence, that to avoid war, you have to convince the other guy that you're willing to go to war. And if I may add to that, I mean, one of the, the, the tragedy of the Korean War is the Korean War was unnecessary. The Korean War begins because Stalin, Kim, to an extent Mao, they're just unclear on whether or not the United States will actually fight to defend South Korea. They're not really sure, and they, they lean in the direction that uh, we won't. And so they gamble. Um, and indeed, if you had taken a poll of, you know, senior Truman administration officials prior to the invasion of South Korea in the summer of 50, I, I think they would have been unclear as well. Their policy was one of, of a kind of explicit lack of clarity. It was a policy of strategic ambiguity absent the name. Then the invasion happens. The newspapers start screaming about another communist advance in East Asia, having, you know, lost China the year prior. And lo and behold, the American people want to intervene. And Truman swiftly, in, in my view, correctly intervenes. So those are two very important lessons right there. One, a total failure of deterrence. Through a really a failure of an attempt to deter in that case. And two, an expectation that we'll be able to sit there, we the United States can sit there following an invasion scenario and in sort of calm, rational, analytic terms decide whether or not it's in our strategic interest to intervene. When in fact, the passions of the moment quickly overwhelm public opinion and essentially d demand intervention. Well, let's stay there then maybe with the Chinese calculations. One thing that worries me is when you go back through recent Chinese leaders, Hu Jintao, Zhang Zemin, uh, even back to Deng, uh, they seem to be almost, um, although obviously there's a huge shift under Deng and the Chinese economy, interchangeable Maoist suits that would regularly uh, make their way to Washington meet with the president. But given the authoritarian nature of the Chinese regime now, I mean, the, the true kind of hierarchical vested in one man style leadership, it seems a, like a lot more of Chinese decision making is going to be tied to, to uh, Xi's biological clock in a way that perhaps it wasn't in the past. I worked for President uh, George W. Bush on his, uh, with him on his memoir, Decision Points. And he tells this uh, wonderful anecdote, which I think made it into the book, but if not, I'm sure he's spoken about this openly, where he uh, had Zhang at his ranch in Crawford 
early in his presidency. And, and he liked to ask what keeps you up at night or what are your top priorities of these foreign leaders he would greet. And Zhang responded with, I, I need to create, and I don't remember what the number is, but it's an astronomical number of jobs every year, which signaled to President Bush that the Chinese were inward focused, um, or so he thought. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. And, and you know, when you're talking earlier, Chairman Gallagher, about uh, Xi being willing to trade his Navy for Taiwan, I mean, it it reminds me a little bit, since I work on on Europe, of uh, the Scandinavian official who I think it was a Scandinavian said, you know, we'd rather be rich in a small power, but the Russians would rather be poor in a great power, which kind of takes me takes me to this uh, wonderful quote you have of the CCP's top theoretical journal on how the Chinese army, quote, defeated the world's number one enemy armed to the teeth on the Korean battlefield, end quote. No one in the U.S. or not enough people read these Chinese journals. And, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the translations over the decades, they're chock full of headlines like how to dis defeat the Americans, how we're going to destroy the United States, et cetera, et cetera. I guess all of those stray comments there are, are supposed to ask the question, is that representative, that kind of martial quality that one can see in PLA journals of – civilian leadership? How do they view the balance of power? Um, where are we at at this moment? Well, maybe I'll say two things that may be a little bit contradictory. I mean, one of my core working hypotheses is that this is like a lot of the aggression we're seeing is not just a Xi Jinping thing. It's a, it's a CCP thing. And, and it predates him, actually. I mean, I, you know, we historians will argue when the new Cold War began, just as historians continue to argue when the old Cold War began. But perhaps, you know, it dates back to May of 2009, when Hu Jintao resuscitated the Nine Dash Line and announced um, China's indisputable sovereignty over the islands in the South China Sea and the adjacent waters and and began this kind of unparalleled project of, of systematic island building and militarization designed to enforce those claims. Now, Xi Jinping has intensified all of this. Xi Jinping has obviously uh, assumed a control to a level that we haven't seen since Mao. Um, you know, he's launched this anti-corruption campaign. He's made the military more beholden to, to him. Also, I think it's useful for us to stop thinking about the PLA as sort of like the People's Liberation Army. It is the it is the military wing of the Chinese Communist Party, and increasingly there is only one person that matters uh, in this system. That's not to say there aren't countervailing forces and, and look at – and this is where I'm sort of going in a different direction. I mean Xi Jinping was just forced to do a complete 180 on a zero COVID policy, in part I think because of protests that we hadn't seen in terms of their scale since, since Tiananmen. Um, but again, it gets to this question um, – and no one knows the answer, right? If you, if you sort of predict that she is going to face not only his own biological clock, what is he now, 69, 70 years old? Um, you got a lot of really old, powerful people uh, on the world stage right now. It's a real problem uh, for the geopolitical environment. That's why we need um, young presidential we need candidates. You. We need you. Why, again, to bring it all back to Iowa, no boomers, okay? No boomers, no losers. Um that's the criteria. That's your. I can see that on your button. That's right. Uh, Gallagher. No boomers, no losers. I have a bunch of I like Mike buttons. So this is real. This is a turnkey operation in terms of the swag here. Um, so if you it's sort of, if you project that he has demographic headwinds, which are severe economic headwinds, the question is, does it make him more risk averse or risk acceptant? Over over the next few years, I think it makes him more risk acceptant. Um, but again, I, that's a it's a it's a working hypothesis. It's I, I can't confidently uh, predict, uh, nor do I claim to be uh, an expert on you know the all of the intrigue in the CCP or whether there are any other leaders who could potentially uh, stand up to Xi. I don't see it. Uh, it's not to say it doesn't exist. Um, it's hard to get an accurate assessment of what's happening in the Politburo Standing Committee. Um, but, uh, I just, I see the risks of war increasing in the short term. I have so many questions I want to ask you, but let me just end with an easy one here or a, a kind of open-ended one. What, what do you imagine the lessons are that Xi Jinping has, uh, taken from the Ukraine war? The class isn't over, is it? Uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't know what like the, what the professor of war, if you'll forgive the image, is going to teach in Ukraine yet. I expect that Xi Jinping um, still has unformed views, um, if only because it's it's impossible to have a fully formed view of how well this has worked out yet without knowing the end. Uh, 
There are some obvious ones in the early stages, right, in the first few weeks of the war about going off half-cocked, about not understanding what your military capabilities and limitations really are. You know, it seems to me that Putin, a career intelligence guy, had achieved some success with these sort of hybrid gray zone, um, uh, sort of very 21st century feeling operations, you know, in Ukraine in 2014 and elsewhere, and felt that he was going to accomplish something that was quite similar, but on a much larger scale, and that the frailty of Ukrainian politics and the sophistication of his own forces would, would be able to pull that off. In retrospect, it was obvious madness, but not a lot of people were saying it was obvious madness at the time to include among Western analysts. So clearly, if not clearly, then I, I think we can expect um, that she and Chinese authorities are studying carefully that failure. But whether the overall enterprise was ultimately a failure, it's, it's to be determined. I think it's important that it become a failure for the Russians and that we teach she that lesson. It's my personal view. I think the conventional view uh, is that because the Russians have bungled the initial invasion and encountered so much unexpected friction, that this is somehow making Xi Jinping cautious with respect to Taiwan. And that could be true. I, I mean, I can see the logic of that argument. But let me just take the other side of the argument for the fun of it. Um, one, uh, yep, he is going to school, to use Professor McLean's uh image on what the Russians are doing. Uh, and I think he's uh, learning a few things. One, uh, uh, American-led, an American-led sanctions regime has profound holes in it and can be beaten. And think about how difficult it was for certain Western businesses to go along with sanctions on Russia. And think about how little we've actually done when it comes to, to, to energy. Uh, it would be so much more difficult to convince the business community and corporate America, let alone the Europeans, to go along with aggressive sanctions on China. Uh, and so I think there are ways in which he's studying this to figure out how he can sanctions-proof his regime and really drive a wedge through the Western alliance if he finds himself in a conflict with America over Ukraine. The second and another thing that comes from the, the Korean War is that uh, logistics really do matter. Um, in the early phases of the war, um, uh, particularly, you know, with incidents like Task Force Smith, um, you know, the Americans aren't able to stop, for example, North Korean tanks that are slowly going down in single file on roads, because even though they have the entire um, uh, magazine uh, inventory of anti-tank uh, munitions that existed in in FICOM, that amounts to what, McLean? Six six total rounds? Um, uh, yeah, correct. And they're, they're, six. They're, they're unable to stop uh, uh, um, uh, the, the North Korean uh, advance. They're sort of enduring truths about logistics that uh, perhaps the Russians forgot initially, and, and Xi Jinping is is going to ensure that his generals understand Perhaps this is this is I'm just again taking the other side of the argument for the fun of it. Um, esprit de corps I think does matter. That's certainly one of the lessons of of the Korean War. It's why Fehrenbach grades the Marines uh, much better than than certain army units, at least in the initial parts of the war, because the Marines still had unit discipline and esprit de corps um, in a way that certain army units had had forgotten. Um, and I think that's part of why you're seeing this aggressive propaganda campaign on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party to prepare not only his military, but the broader population for sacrificing and the sacrifice that would be necessary to take Taiwan. They just released an eight episode documentary talking about how capable the PLA is and how they're willing to die for Taiwan. What I don't know is whether that, how widely shared that sentiment is within the Chinese military and within the Chinese uh, population. And then I think the big question looming over all of this is not just what Xi Jinping plans to do and when he'll do it, but can they fight? Um, and here again, another lesson of the Korean War, perhaps any war, is that you don't really know how you're going to fight until you actually have to have to fight. Uh, the last time they fought really was uh, in Vietnam. Uh, it didn't work out well uh, for the Chinese. Um, and this is an untested military that looks very scary on paper. But when it comes to all the sort of basic things that are necessary to be successful on the battlefield, um, from you know fire team working together uh, to you know a division uh, moving effectively, uh, we just don't know uh, how the PLA are going to operate. You guys uh, mentioned you both made reference to this uh, propaganda uh, film. Uh, is there some place that we can all watch it? Should we wa should we watch it? You and should. 
And, and and can we, where can we get it? You, you can find it on YouTube, though. It's, it is actually hard to find it with English subtitles. Um, uh, I can I, I can send you that. I don't know how easy it is for, maybe you can post the link to it for uh, for listeners. I'll, I'll send you where we found it. I would advise, you know, if you if you have um, reason to believe that the, the, the Chinese Communist Party is uh, interested in what you say and do, um, you might invest in a burner laptop. I can't vouch for the uh, for the security of uh, of of this uh, this file, um, but it's it's um you should watch it. It's alarming. It, it's relevant to your earlier question, and Chairman Gallagher just made this point about casualty aversion. I mean, this movie is a form of political preparation for war, um, very clearly, and part of a broader campaign. And it is eerie to watch. I mean, the Korean War begins when MacArthur invades Korea at Incheon. Like that's that's how the movie portrays the and when we're bombing north of the Yalu, the, the, the American imperialists started. Yes. The, that is yeah. those are the incidents that began the war. It it is a very high production value, sort of slick looking kind of. I mean, it's it's almost cartoonish in the way it's 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 like the Marvel comic universe kind of level of special effects, um, uh, and very gritty in its depiction of battlefield violence and sort of drives hard at the quote unquote realism aspect of battlefield violence while being completely unrealistic and unbelievable in its depiction of the human dimension of Chinese fortunes where, you know, all the commissars are great guys and every officer is brave and noble. You know, you guys can imagine how it goes. But it's wild and weird and unsettling to watch it in a movie made in 2021. Um, and it's very clear what the movie is trying to do. And if you if that if you want more, you can go to the second highest grossing Chinese film of all time, which is, of course, Wolf Warrior 2, released in 2017. It's why we get this phrase, Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. Uh, it stars a, a PLA special ops soldier named Leng Feng, and the actor is the same actor who plays a main role in the battle at Lake Changin. Um, and the uh, uh, the message uh, of the movie, uh, which the main character says, is that the Americans are good for nothing. Uh, posters promoting the movie had the tagline, anyone who offends China no matter how remote, must be exterminated. Um, and the bad guy is, of course, an American mercenary named Big Daddy. Uh, and in the original Wolf Warrior, I think the Amer the bad guy is uh, another American mercenary with an inexplicable British accent, a former U.S. Navy SEAL named Tomcat. So those are those are fun action movies you can watch. I think both are available on on YouTube um, if you're if you're bored, Mike. All right, they're on TikTok too, I believe. That's that's right. <laughs> Okay. All right. Uh, Big Daddy and Tomcat, we thank you. It was, uh, it was a very interesting... Big Daddy uh, McClade. <laughs> a little, little, bit, little bit depressing, but very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank John. you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe. If you enjoyed today's conversation, and we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>